In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. The disciples ask Jesus a really good question. Who can be saved? Who can be saved? We may not use that same language, and we might even be a little embarrassed by that vocabulary of the saved and the unsaved, but it's a question that we probably ask at some level, in some way. Who doesn't want to be saved? Saved if salvation refers to heaven, uh, to eternal life, uh, to peace, to serenity. It's because we want to be saved in one way or another that most of us are here today, probably, though we might not explain it that way. Salvation can look like a lot of different things, depending on our perspective, depending on our life. For some, salvation is eternal life. They look ahead for it, to be reunited with people they love to have lost Salvation might look like healthy children or a healthy spouse. For one or two, salvation might be like just having a day without pain. Given a chronic condition that seems not to respond to medicine, salvation might look like sober, thoughtful living. Salvation might look like prayer. For others, salvation would have a a communal aspect. And so salvation would be thought of more on a global scale. It would look like equal rights or opportunities for all people. Salvation would look like um, an evil playing, an even playing field, regardless of race or gender or sexual orientation or income or physical or intellectual ability or anything else. Salvation might look like everyone having enough food to eat, adequate shelter, being able to call someplace, somewhere home. Maybe being saved is as simple as just a moment or two that are worry or burden free. Not worried for the moment about the aging parent not worried for the moment about the child who can't quite fit in, not worried about the spouse who's looking for work. And so salvation can look like a place of just not being anxious, not being worried, just being alive and enjoying it. If you think about it, most of us want salvation. And so we can probably relate at some level to this young man who comes to Jesus in the gospel. He runs up excitedly at first, it seems, and asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him to reflect on the commandments, the basics. And the man says, Oh yes, well, I'm pretty good. I've done all those things. I haven't killed anybody. I've loved my parents as much as I can. I don't steal But then Jesus looks at the man, probably looks at him right in his eye and says, you lack one thing. Go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The man seems shocked at this and he goes away. The gospel writer says, grieving. 
We can get caught up on this part, but I think the point of the gospel is a little larger than just this point. The disciples are confused by what Jesus tells this man. I mean, after all, isn't this the model religious person? A person who keeps the law, who's doing all the commandments, who's functionally a fully faithful person. He's doing exactly what the whole tradition has taught people to do. But then Jesus seems to turn everything upside down. Jesus makes up new rules. Jesus reinterprets. Jesus broadens the perspective In some ways, he he turns upside down the whole notion of what it meant to follow God. It reminds me of another story in scripture, that well-known story of the prodigal, the prodigal son. You remember that story where there's an older brother who's done all the right things. He's, He's kept the commandments. He's stayed at home. He's worked hard. He's looked after the family. He's he's dedicated his life to the family and the farm. And then there's that younger brother the younger brother who's the cut-up, who, who goes out and plays hard and squanders his inheritance. But eventually he returns home, humble like a beggar. And yet it's for this younger brother that the father throws a great big party. It's for this younger brother that the father gives all the attention and makes a special feast. And so the older brother wonders, you know, what's up with this? I'm the good one. I've done all the right things. And yet the younger one, the cut up is getting the party. The older brother is angry and he's jealous and he's a little bitter. Well, that older brother in the prodigal son's story and the rich man in today's story hear what should be good news for them from Jesus The good news being that one cannot buy or earn the love of God. And yet these two characters seem to be so invested, and I use that word intentionally, they're so invested in what they think God wants, and they expect a return on their investment. Jesus shows that God's economics work in a very, very different way. And so the disciples ask Jesus that question that may be our question. Okay, then, who can be saved? And Jesus does that irritating thing he does so often. He doesn't quite answer that question. He answers another question. Rather than who can be saved, Jesus answers who can do the saving. And it's that question that Jesus says it's God who does the saving. God and God alone saves us in God's own way, in God's own time, in God's own lavish, self-giving, self-offering, overflowing love. That's where salvation comes from. It's not what we do. It's what God does for us, in spite of us. God saves us. God saves us from ourselves. God saves us from becoming too attached to our possessions, to our ideas, too attached to our friends, to our family, to our identities. In both our readings from the prophet Amos and the gospel, there's a wonderful aspect of the scripture that that follows an expected pattern, but then ends in ambiguity. 
There's wiggle room. There's some room within what some might see as a foregone conclusion. There's room for us to move toward God. There's room for God's grace to move towards us. We heard in that first reading, Amos the prophet thundering on about injustice and oppression. Things look bad for his audience. His words indict the people and he predicts that that culture is going to crumble in upon itself because of its greed, because of its selfishness, because it ignores the way of God. But then Amos ends with these words, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious. It may be. I love that phrase. It may be, says Amos. In other words, the future of those who seek God is not written in stone. It's open. It's open for change, for growth, for repentance. It's open for salvation. Likewise, in the gospel, one interpretation can have the story of the rich man and Jesus end in a sad way, where Jesus says to the man, you lack one thing, go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and follow me. And we're told that when the man heard this, he's shocked and he goes away grieving, for he had many possessions. Notice that it's not his wealth that is the primary problem. The rich are neither better nor worse than the poor. The problem is that this man is reluctant to follow Jesus. And in his case, it involves letting go of all the possessions that are in the way, all those things that weigh him down, that don't allow him to move toward the salvation God is offering. The Bible story says he went away grieving, but who knows how the story really ends. We don't know if he shows up again in Jerusalem, maybe with Nicodemus, another wealthy leader of the, of the local crowd. And maybe he got, he got it in the end. We just don't know. We don't know if later, after thinking about Jesus' words, after hearing about the crucifixion, his death on the cross, his rising again and again in glory, maybe this man then has a change of heart and decides to follow Jesus. The scriptures leave it open-ended. It leaves room for us to imagine. It leaves room for grace. Just as in our own lives, no matter where we might be in our own calling to follow Jesus, no matter what might stand in the way of our being more faithful disciples, no matter what might seem to be in the way of our living fully and freely, there's room for us to respond to God There's room for the story to end in a different way. There's room for God's justice to to smash all barriers, God's mercy to forget all sin, God's grace to break through and bring us closer. From time to time in train stations and other public places, uh, we come across an earnest believer who will look at us and say, Have you been saved? I have a friend who has a great answer. He's always ready. He looks at these people dead in the eye and he says, Have I been saved? Yes, every single day. (laughs) What he means is that every day he wakes up again and turns again to God through Christ and receives the goodness God would give us. We have been saved and we are being saved. 
The good news of Jesus Christ is that God is eager to take away whatever burdens us, whatever weighs us down, whatever makes us sluggish to follow him, whatever keeps us from his love. God offers to empty our hands, to take away whatever it is we cling to, and to lay it aside so that our hands might be free and open, our hands and our hearts, so that we can fully receive the love of God and share it with others. Because with God, all things are possible. Who can be saved? Every single one of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.